Welcome. Here at The Bridge Church, we exist to help you connect to God, grow with family, and serve our city. We hope today's message will allow you to grow deeper in your connection to God. Enjoy the message. Great is your goodness. Great is your kindness. Great is your mercy. Great is your love for us. Great is your truth. Great is your provision. Great is your protection. Great is your intimacy with us. Great is your wisdom beyond what we can ever imagine or comprehend. God, great is your faithfulness. Lord, we acknowledge you today. We extol you today. We declare that you are great. Even in the midst of difficult, trying times, you are great. Even when we don't understand what's happening in our lives, you are great. Even when we're in that time where we, we're just crying out to you and we can't see you and we can't hear you, we declare you are great. We ask that you would just this moment just settle our hearts and our minds and with that truth, and would you speak to us as your people, Lord? We, we invite you, we ask you, we beg you, we plead. Speak to us right now. In Christ's name, amen. life I've seen depictions of Jesus as a blonde haired blue eyed white man. Can one group of people own an entire religion? Who created Christianity? How can I identify with Jesus if he's white? Why do white men who claim to be Christians kill people because of their race? White man's religion. So I was born in 1977. Now that's significant because the TV movie Roots had just come out the first time. And my mom was 20, my father was 21, and so they just got in the heat of the moment, drove out to Fairmount Park in Philly, and just like Kunta Kinte's mom and dad offered me up to God. <laughs> like I was Simba or something, right? <laughs> that year was also significant because they had just recently converted to the nation of Islam, and this was around the time Elijah Muhammad had just passed away, and there was a conflict that had emerged. There was a split of camps between his son, Warth Dean Muhammad, and this other cat named Louis Farrakhan about who would be the leader of the nation of Islam. I think we know who won that one. But nevertheless, so they went with War at the Dean's camp, the camp that was more orthodox Islam in their expression, which is where my name comes from, Rasul, Amin, Akbar, Barry. And you know, growing up, Christianity was never like a real option uh, to me. 
not only because of my background, but also because I was a hip-hop head. And there's just, you know, all of my favorite artists, they, they seem to be on this one thing, right? That you needed to have knowledge of self and a cultural identity that had nothing to do with this white man's religion. The Bible was routinely criticized as being a tool that the white man used to hold us down. Each group, each artist, whether it was Rakim or Nas or Wu-Tang or KRS or Poor Righteous Teachers, A Tribe Called Quest, whoever, even NWA, all seemed to proclaim some sense that there was some other knowledge that was more real than the faith. Faith in Christ, anyway. But, you know, that was fine with me because I wasn't really checking for God anyway. So I was pretty good. So I go up into high school, and everything changes when I read this book called The Autobiography of Malcolm X. Uh, It was the book that changed my life more than anything else, just seeing and, and reading this story and this history of this incredibly articulate, incredibly passionate man that was talking about injustices in his day and his journey to self-discovery and how to do that, and not in a journey that was about action as well. I became a big fan. I, I bought a Malcolm X poster, the one with his finger up to his temple with like the thinking, and I still got my horn rim glasses right now to represent because that's how much it meant to me. So then I go on to college, and there I become an Africana Studies major, president of the Black Student League, then find out that not all students recognize that identity as black, and so there were some Caribbean and some African folks that felt left out. So then we organized an umbrella group called Umoja, Kiswahili for Unity, to be the umbrella group that all of us could get up under and mobilize our political voice. I even studied abroad in Africa and to reconnect with my roots and this sense of connection. And all throughout that journey was an amazing process, but then there was this other thing that was happening, that there was this new faith that was developing in me, this faith in Christ, this faith in this one that the Bible talked about could not only restore my soul spiritually, but also orient myself culturally, and the problem was everything else around me was telling me something different. And it got to the point where I was like, God, is this true? You have to give me some answers or else I'm going to have to leave this alone because everybody else around me is telling me something different. And I struggled and I read the Bible and other books, but he did answer. And as usual, what I found was that his answers were better than my questions. Not only was biblical Christianity true, but it was the furthest thing from a white man's religion, the furthest thing from ethnocentric. And the only solution in a world that has been torn and abused by ethnic and racial strife to bring us together in a solution toward healing And I began to understand what I want to share with you today. Let's see if this thing works and is on. But uh, here we go. All right. Next. Am I controlling this? It's on. No, it's not. (laughs) See, that's when you, like, try to throw shade at the sound check, but then it's not really. It's your fault. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. 
All right, so here's the thing. Here's the deal. Just to kind of set some parameters today, we will explore this question from a historical, cultural, and biblical approach. So this is not going to be your typical sermon and how we do things because all three of these sides will be important and necessary for us to kind of explain and process. And we're going to take it methodologic, methodologically, and the first one we're going to deal with is the myth. And we're going to take each myth one by one. And the first myth is that Christianity is a myth itself created to oppress people of color. So the whole idea of a myth is that it's made up, fabricated, and its purpose behind why somebody created it was for control. Interestingly enough, the Bible has a different version of itself. The Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 1.16 says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What Peter is saying here, he's saying, look, we didn't make this stuff up. From the very beginning, from the time Jesus was rolled the stone away and walked out of the tomb, there were other people saying, yo, the the high priest gave the soldiers some money to tell people that the disciples took them while they were asleep. Now, how are you going to be able to testify that somebody stole something when you was asleep? Because, like, you sleeping. But nevertheless, that's what they told him to say. And so Peter's like, yo, let me set the record straight here. This is not a myth. In fact, it says, look, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He's saying, look, we saw him, and specifically, if you go down with the rest of the passage, he's talking about a specific moment when they're up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and Jesus, is his whole appearance looks like bright as lightning, and he's before them, and God, in a voice, says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And Peter is saying here, I didn't make this up. I saw it. I heard it. I was there. And so... This is not something that he's saying you could just mess with and change and tweak. But then he goes on to say further along in that chapter, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spake from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Here's another thing he's saying, look, contrary to what you heard, we didn't just write stuff down just to write stuff down. We're saying that God himself inspired and directed what it was that we were going to say. That's their version of what happened. So all of a sudden, they're saying this is a totally different process than anything else that has ever been written in the history of mankind because it's coming from God and his prerogative and his directive. But he also anticipates something else. He goes on to say in 2 Peter chapter 2, we don't have time to go there, but he says, but false prophets will emerge from you, and these false prophets will lead you astray. Paul also gives uh, reference to this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, For such men are false prophets, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Now, Just got to be real. I'm not here to be politically correct today. 
And so the reality of what this passage is saying is that, yo, Satan himself will appear to certain people and as an angel of light. These people will think that there is an apparition, there's, a, there's an appearance of a servant of God, but it's actually Satan himself. And isn't it interesting that two of the largest growing religions today both have a story of a man that encountered an angel of light in a cave? Islam and Mormonism. I believe him. I believe they saw something that looked like an angel, but it wasn't. But fast forward to the current times, because see, this, this idea, this white man's religion thing, this, this, the, the thing that's fascinating about it when doing the research is it's, young, it's a young idea. Even though Christianity itself is 2,000 years old, this idea is less than 100 years old, and we can actually trace its lineage. Y'all mind if we do that real quick? All right, so here we go, right? So now this guy wasn't the source of it, but there's a, a, a ideological strand that starts with Marcus Garvey. Now Marcus Garvey, anybody heard of Marcus Garvey before? Jamaica in the house? Yeah, so he was uh, a person, he was a Christian, and he believed that God, you know, he wanted to see the whole of humanity, especially African-Americans, restored. But not just African-Americans. He's considered the father of Pan-Africanism because he was the first one that said, you know, this is not just about the plight of the American in the United States, but this is a, a global thing. There's an African diaspora involved with this. And so he started to, you know, mobilize people and they started to talk about economic and political empowerment and actually begin to identify places in Africa where they would resettle and redevelop the country from which his people had been taken from. And he says this, he says, we see a new Ethiopia, a new Africa, stretching her hands of influence throughout the world, teaching men the way of life and peace, the way of God. And this was a Christian movement. But the reason why I have to start with Marcus Garvey, and this is very at the early of the 20, uh, 20th century, 1910s, 1920s, and he's around, and he, he's the first person to identify that people of African descent came from one place. He says, we came from Ethiopia. So that's one idea. But then also he organizes this entire network, this strand of people all over the country. Parenthetically, Malcolm X's parents were both involved in UNIA, the organization that... Uh, Marcus Garvey started. And that was how they actually met at a conference. And so he begins this. And so the next phase, though, is where it gets crazy. So on the left-hand side, the guy sitting down, that's Noble Drew Ali. And Noble Drew Ali gets this idea. He says, you know what? I like what Marcus Garvey is doing. He was aware of and actually promoted him. But he says something's different, though. We are actually not from Ethiopia. We're actually Moors. And Moors, if you know about history and Middle Ages, were a group of uh, North African Muslims who were, you know, had an incredible culture, civilization, all this. But they were Muslim. And he's saying this is who we're represented from. And he introduces the idea for the first time that something called Islam is the true religion of the black man. Or as he referred to it, the Moors, the Asiatic man. So this is the first time where this idea of, okay, a religion is associated with us because of our heritage. Now, the guys next to him, Elijah Muhammad, who was part of the Moorish science temple, decides to take the idea a little bit further and says, no, actually, yeah, the Islam is the true religion of the black man, but it's a little bit deeper than that, you see, because white people are the devil. 
And they're the cause of all of our problems in the world. They're, and there's the reason why is because there's an evil scientist named Dr. Yakub who systematically kept breeding lighter and lighter skinned black people till they got up with white people. They're innately degenerate, evil, and they're the, that's why they're the source of all of our problems. And so he develops this ideology. He develops this teaching, and it spreads like wildfire because people are wanting and desperate for change, and they're upset about the conditions in their community, and they're looking for a sense of identity. And so he writes this book, Message to the Black Man. But not everybody was happy in the Nation of Islam with just going that far. And so the brother right to the end of the screen, to the right, with the little button that says Allah, that was Clarence 13X. Now we in Harlem, y'all. He's at Temple Number 7 in Harlem, where Malcolm X was the lead minister, and he says, you know what? Yeah, white people are the devil, but yo, you ain't go far enough. See, black men, we're God. That, we're gods, actually, all of us. Well, not the women, y'all earth, but that's another story. But black men, we God. And so he branches off from the nation of Islam to start the 5% nation. They just hand the baton, one to another to another. The lie just keeps growing. Now, in the middle and the bottom, you have a brother named Dr. Malachi York. He grows up in the 60s around the time of this 5% thing, kind of bounces around, kind of like club hopping to these different ideologies until finally he creates something called the United Nuwabian Nation of Moors. Goes back to the Moor idea from Bishop or uh, Noble Drew Ali, the bishop. <laughs> he was kind of the bishop, though. Um, and then on the other two sides, the thing that's a trip is the lady on the, on, on the left-hand side, she is the one who created Kemet Orthodoxy. So, like, all these, like, Egyptologists who, like, want to go back to worshiping Egypt and, like, all of the Egyptian gods, well, that's the person who did it, interestingly enough, who created this idea. Then to the right, you have Hebrew Israelites that say, actually, Islam is not the true religion of the black man. Now, actually, we're actually the Jewish people that the Bible talks about in the Old Testament. That's us. Like, that's our people. And they kind of, depending on who you might talk to, there might be Puerto Ricans involved with that. There might be Mexicans involved with that. There might, anybody that was involved with the transatlantic slave trade or involved with oppression in the Western Hemisphere, they might mess with you. But all of these ideas, all of these things kind of continue to ferment. But let's move forward. So Elijah Muhammad says this, because this will blow your mind if you didn't already know it. So this is a quote from the message to the black man. It says, Allah, a.k.a. Wallace D. Fard. So he believed that this guy, Wallace D. Fard, who revealed to him truth, was Allah in the flesh, right? And he says, Fard said that Christianity was a religion organized and backed by the devils, a.k.a. white people, for the purpose of making slaves of black mankind. I also bear witness that it certainly has enslaved my people here in America. Now, so he says, look, actually, Islam is the true religion of the black man. The person who revealed this to me was Allah in the flesh. His name is Wallace D. Fard, and this is what he looks like. Yes, this is real. The person who came up with the idea that Christianity was a white man's religion is a white man who the nation of Islam worships as God. (laughs) 
You know, it, it's, 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 it, there is, it's crazy, it's ironic, and it would be funny to me if it wasn't so destructive to so many people that's around us. And so many people have bought this lie. This is where the lie came from. You can do the research. This is not hard to find. Just Google his name. You'll, you'll see it. So this is the truth, though. Uh, in Acts chapter 2, you find day one of the church. The day of Pentecost comes. The Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples. They began to speak in other languages. It's the day of Pentecost, so that means Jewish people and people who converted to Judaism have come from all over the world to worship God on this day because it was one of the high holy days. And so this is the reason why God chose this day to be the day that he communicates and reveals the truth that the church era has begun and all of what that means. And so they start to, the disciples, Peter and the rest, start to proclaim and preach who God is in their various people's different languages. And this is what they say. They say, utterly amazed. They're shocked, right? Because they know, like, wait a minute, how are they speaking in my language? He says, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? That, that's, in other words, ain't they country folk from, like, the south somewhere? Like, what do they know about speaking all these different foreign languages? It says, then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. This is day one of the church. And all right, just, just do a little geography check. What continent is Egypt on? What continent is Libya on? Okay, and Cyrene is also in Africa. So from day one of the church, there were Africans present. And not just Africans, but people from all over the rest of the known world at that point. If you do, and I had to just kind of use the ellipses to kind of shorten it for the sake of time, but if you do a search where all these people are, they're in Asia. They're all over the place. And this is day one of the church. But then some will say, but yeah, see, y'all worship a white Jesus. You know, I can't roll with that. You know what I mean? Y'all, you know, like that, that's you worshiping Jesus. Well, not, this, this is interesting. Here's the oldest image of Jesus Christ. This is the oldest known image of Jesus. It is found in Ethiopia, which parenthetically is not a coincidence that it's found in Ethiopia. Because in Acts chapter 8, we see that Philip shares his faith, shares the gospel with an Ethiopian who's in King Can- Queen Candace's court. The, the Ethiopian gets so excited that he goes and comes back home. And to this day, the Ethiopian Coptic church says he went home, told all of us about Jesus, and we've been worshiping him ever since before the gospel even got to Europe. So it's no coincidence that this is where we find it. The earliest piece of the New Testament we find in the John Rylands papyri, which is found in Egypt. So that's just the truth. That's just the inf- so. So, in any case, so where did this lie? How did it develop, right? So, so there, here's an interesting thing. There's a, this is a professor. He's not a believer as far as I know, but he says Christianity is so old in Africa that it can rightly dis- be described as an indigenous, traditional, and African religion. That's how old we're talking. It is actually older than other forms of worship in Africa, like Yoruba, in its practice. Saying Christianity is a white man's religion is like saying Iggy Azalea created hip-hop. It is historically inaccurate, it is culturally inaccurate, and it is offensive. 
So the myth number one is Christianity is a myth created to oppress people of color. The fact is Christianity was revealed by God to people of color before it even reached Europe. That's the truth. The diversity that God used to reveal himself demonstrates that he, the value he places on all of us, everybody around the world. And if you look at the scripture, the study of scripture, the story of scripture from Genesis chapter 12, 15, and 18, when God reveals himself to Abraham and says, through your seed, the world will be blessed. To the end of the story in, Romans, in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, where John sees a vision of every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping at the feet of Jesus. This is a global thing, and it always has been and it always will be. Myth number two, Eurocentric Christianity is the Christianity of the Bible. Well, let me just kind of define some terms here, what we mean by Eurocentric it can be defined this way, reflecting a tendency to interpret the world in terms of European or Anglo-American values and experiences. Another term that we can use to describe this is ethnocentrism, right? The idea that somehow my culture and my people are the pinnacle of human history, are the best. This is a very you know, racist and uh, very offensive way of looking at the world, and one that many people unfortunately have. Now, we got to do a little bit more history because even in addition to the reality that already we saw that in the Ethiopian church, the Egyptian church, it was already on and popping from day one. They was worshiping Jesus and singing songs from the first, from the very beginning. But on the, in Europe, things changed a little bit in 311. Now, prior to 311 in the West, Christians were arrested, tortured, mutilated, burned, starved, and condemned to gladiatorial contests to amuse spectators. We see this, again, through the book of Acts. Books, the Acts is a history of the early church, and we see nothing but persecution. We see them chased. We see them condemned to die. All of the disciples, except for John, were martyred for their faith. John was just dropped off and exiled on an isle called Patmos till he died. So this was not something that was a popular, dominant, or powerful thing. In fact, there's catacombs where they were hiding. There are places where it was tough to be a Christian in this context. Then in 311, what happens is Constantine, the emperor of Rome, converts to Christianity. Now, we don't know if this was authentic or if this was a power play. A whole lot of scholars and the historians debate about this. But prior to this point, this is 300 years into Christianity, they, the people of God were a minority who were harassed and persecuted wherever they went. Now, he comes up and things change. And all of a sudden, European Christians went from being primarily persecuted to being agents of the state. And so the realities that we see, the tragedies that we see come after this in uh, the Crusades and the Inquisition and, and the colonialism and all these things were not the initial expression of what Christianity was for hundreds of years. And even after that, it's not what you saw happening on what you call the eastern side of things in, in the Ethiopian Coptic Toast, in the Egyptian church. But nevertheless, the reality was, yeah, there was some crazy stuff and some evil things that happened as a result of Eurocentrism. And so this is where we get this image, this picture of missionaries and clergy in a very paternalistic way coming into different people groups of the world and kind of shaping them into their image. But the key question is, is this biblical Christianity or is this ethnocentrism? So just to kind of set you up, so 
there's an A side orientation and there's an A and B side orientation. And this is not me, this is from a professor named Carl Ellis, uh, one of my mentors, a, a great scholar of mine. And this is what he kind of how he paints this picture. He says the scope of theology has two sides. There's an epistemological side, which has those implications called side A, and then there's an ethical side called side B. Side A has epistemological implications, side B has ethical implications. Now, I'm going to define what that means. Epistemological, relating to what we know and believe about who God is. This is what we commonly refer to as doctrine, right? God is one. Jesus is his son. What does that mean? He's, you know, fully God, fully man, Holy Spirit, Bible, all of this stuff. Information, ideas, beliefs about God and how we see the world. Epistemology, how we know things. B is ethical side, what we do in light of what we know about who God is. And the problem with Eurocentric Christianity and what we've seen happen over time is that there was a lot of emphasis on A, but because of the power dynamic, there was a complete ignoring of B far too often. So in other words, people were talking a lot about God, but wasn't walking anything about God. And so as a result of that, you see the in the same space, the craziness of people exalting and, and worship. I mean, you see stuff like at slave dungeons, there being chapels where the people worship before they went off and took people from their native land and, into slavery and into bondage. Because there was an A but no B. And there's a reason why. Because see, what happens is as people, we typically like to cherry pick what benefits us and what's true based on what's going to suit us, not based on what God requires. But God requires A and B. At least he does in scriptures. And we know this is true because this is what Jesus was. Jesus is asked, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Right? So this is a lot of ways the A side. He says, love God, believe right things about him, love him with your mind, love him with your heart. But he doesn't end there. There's a B side. And he says, and the second is like to it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends all the law and the prophets. So from Jesus' perspective, he said, look, he didn't just end on epistemology, what you know and what you believe. He said, this also has everything to do about what you do and how you treat somebody. Love your neighbor. So if somebody in the name of Christ does one and not the other, is that Jesus' fault or the person who's not applying his word? Here's another thing. In the Old Testament, it says, look, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. It is impossible to read the history of Israel, Judah, and the Old Testament and walk away with any other impression other than the fact that God is so jealous about us treating people justly, so jealous about his nature that he allowed his own people to be in captive and destroyed because they refused to treat people justly. That's the story. Too often, however, ethnocentric American Christianity has ignored Christ's call to express side A, doctrine, and not side B, ethics. And herein why people look and go, ah, no, I can't mess with that because that can't be right. But the reality is, there's not the full picture and the full story there. Here's another thing. Replacing ethnocentrism or Eurocentrism with Eurocentrism is still ethnocentrism. Let me say that again. 
replacing Eurocentrism with Eurocentrism is still ethnocentrism. See, so in a lot of circles, and again, like I said, I was an Africana studies major, and so, you know, you have folks, and you're like, I'm Afrocentric. And so what people have done is by being Afrocentric is say, now instead of, I'm going to replace Eurocentric perspective that everything revolves around Europe with an Afrocentric one that everything revolves around Africa. But there's still ethnocentrism there. But they'll say, but nah, but see, we the original people, though, so it's okay. I'm like, well, I think my Asian brothers and sisters would disagree with you that it's okay to look at the world through just a simply Afrocentric lens because you're not inviting them to the party. And so the reality is we will all lean toward ethnocentrism if we don't have theocentrism, a biblical view, a biblical view. So, so let me just kind of make it plain just so we can see the distinction and see the differences. In Eurocentrism, the idea is that we make others in our image. We're going to go out and colonize and we're going to cut the hair off of Native Americans and make them wear suits and make them into us. And then we're going to slap some Jesus into it and make it all all right. But that's not what God said. He said, I, I make men in my image. All men are made in my image, not your image. That's a humanity problem. That's not a God problem. And the Eurocentric idea, might is right. So we're going to take lands and then we're going to slap God's name on it and say, yeah, see, he gave us the glory and the victory. But when I read in the Bible, right is might. Jesus says, I don't, you don't take my life. I live, willingly give it down as a sacrifice for humanity. Peter tries to come up and start slow, throwing bows, right? He starts knucking and bucking when the, when the priests come to arrest Jesus. Takes off the ear off of a servant. This is what happens. It's in the text. And Jesus says, stop. That's not the way of my kingdom. He said, don't you know, if I wanted to do it the, like right, I got legions of angels. I could call down like, yo, yo, Gabriel, Michael, handle my business. They gangster like that, and they would just wipe everybody out. But he says, that's not the way. That's not the way that I'm doing things. So the way that I'm doing things is through the cross where I sacrifice and I die for my enemies. And on the cross, I say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's what I do. That's my way. Right is might. And that somehow through that way, that'll change the world. Not converting people at the sword. Eurocentrism, we win by conquering. Jesus says we win by dying and serving. He said the least among you will be the greatest and the greatest among you will be the least. He flips the thing on its head. Eurocentric idea. We can save the world if we just make everybody like us. The reality in a bibliocentric view is Jesus already saved the world. And we just have to announce what he's already done and proclaimed. There's a difference. So the myth number two is that Eurocentric Christianity is the Christianity of the Bible. And what I'm trying to tell you, my brothers and sisters, is biblical Christianity is theocentric, not ethnocentric. It is very clear from the time that he creates all of humanity and says that, look, they are made in my image to the time in Genesis chapter 3 when all of them sin before a holy God. And he said, now y'all all sinful to the time when he redeems all of humanity at the same thing. It's all y'all. It's not us. And I don't, he don't, we didn't make God in our image. He made us in his. What's the implication of that? Because the Bible is God's revelation, read and apply it to understand his view of humanity. Unfortunately, one of the reasons why a lot of these groups and a lot of these ideas have so much weight is because they come at you and they ask you a lot of questions. And the reality is they've read the Bible better than most of us have. 
And so then we start to stutter and we start to question and they start, I don't know. And then you're like, maybe you're right because they've read their Bible more than you. We need to understand who we are from God's word, not from somebody else's. And this is the last myth we're going to get over. Myth number three, Africans were manipulated to accept their oppression through Christianity, right? So this is kind of a build on the last idea. So this idea is like, okay, so it was created to oppress people. And so the trick is that, right? So what happened was Africans came over here and then they, the slave masters wanted them to accept Jesus. So then they'd be good slaves and just listen to them, right? Anybody heard that before? You know, (laughs) the history tells a much different story. One of the most famous abolitionists we know of, Frederick Douglass, had this to say. He said, I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land. So what Frederick Douglass did is he did his research. He read the Bible and said, wait a minute, hold on, there's something different going on here. When I read about what Jesus did and what Jesus talked about and what Jesus said, I see one thing. When I look up and see what this slave master is doing, I experience something completely different. The problem isn't Christianity, it's this person's execution. And so therefore, the great, one of the greatest abolitionists we know said this, but you might go, well, yeah, but that was just him, though. Well, I'm prepared for that as well. Sojourner Truth, that ain't what her name her mama gave her. That's the name she said Jesus gave her when she was there in her room and God revealed himself to her. And you know what he told her? Leave slavery. <laughs> Get out of here. So then she escaped and then he gave her this name to say, you're going to be a sojourner, a traveler for my truth. And she combined the A side and the B side. She combined a way of God's looking at things with the fact that her people needed to be free. And she communicated this, and she was a a woman's rights activist as well as an abolitionist. Harriet Tubman, what's her nickname? Grandma Moses, where they get that from? The Bible, because Moses led his people free. That's what when the enslaved saw that, and they read that story and took hold of that. That was like, yo, that's, that's what's up. This guy, you know, he, maybe he could do something about our situation since he completely flipped over the situation for Israel. <sighs> Richard Allen. This is the first uh, black church denomination. This brother gets saved out of slavery, starts the free African society, and begins to serve his community as well as with a picture over abroad and begins to serve those folks over there and, and just completely transforms his community in Philly. Nat Turner, Denmark Vesey, Toussaint Louverture, all of these people are people who, because of their faith, decided to do something about their circumstances. The only response we find in history of those who became Christians were to fight for their freedom. I, I'm telling you, I can't find, I looked. I can't find any other expression. I don't see it. So in other words, this myth that somehow people were like, yo, because like, I'm reading this text and because like, it's a, like, I'm like, a Christian, that means I got to just like, sit here and just take that lash and just like, do my thing. It doesn't exist. I can't find one church that had that in their doctrinal statement. I can't find one activist that slavery proponents lifted up and said, yeah, li- listen to him. See, he's our little talking monkey over here. So the third myth is that Africans were manipulated to accept the oppression, their own oppression through Christianity. The fact is that the gospel empowered 
the oppressed to fight injustice. That's what happened. That's the history. I'm not making this up. It's, it's, it's just the truth of it. And not only that, and we also find that the abolitionist movement by itself, when on the white side, these were all believers who were like, yo, this is sin. We are in sin by enslaving these people. And so there was another voice, that, a louder voice that was raised up by activism to say, because of what I believe, we cannot stand by and let this happen. Check out William Wilberforce when you have time. He's the reason why slavery ended in the UK a full 30 years before it did in the United States, because of his convictions and his faith. William Wilberforce. Because God calls us to do justice, we should continue to fight against oppression. So how do we respond to these truths? Well, there are three components that I just kind of want to reflect on, and we've already talked about them, but this is, you know, tie this together, because the reality is we have what, we, what people call a shared trauma, a ma'afa of experience, the, 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 the climactic experience of the Middle Passage of hundreds of years of oppression has created a sense where, and this is not just in this country or in this hemisphere, but any people anywhere, when there's that level of oppression, there's a search for dignity, a search for identity, and a search for significance that uh, is dominant in, this, in, in life. And how do we get that met is a key question that a lot of these groups, this is why they grow so much, is because they speak to these issues and they speak to these core desires in a way that oftentimes, sadly, as, as Christians, we don't. So in search of, identity, of dignity, this question of what am I worth? Well, we've already examined because God used so many different people to accomplish his plans. That was fact number one. The diversity that God used to reveal himself demonstrates the value that he places on all of us. So our dignity can be found in the reality of who God is and the fact that he is no respecter of persons. That the wicked will be judged. That the righteous, no matter where they're from, will be rewarded. That he draws himself to all, not just some who makes money and some who doesn't. Not to somebody based on their ethnic group or your background. In our search for our identity, this question of who am I, right? He says, our identity can be affirmed and sure because the Bible is God's revelation. Read, and, read it and apply it to understand his view of humanity. Now, this goes one in, in one accord and in, in confluence with our journey in terms of our cultural identity. And that's one that I'm still in the process of. And there is something to lament about what has been lost in many of our cases who don't, can only go back a few generations in our family tree. But the amazing picture is that in Romans, it talks, talks about how the fact that Jesus is the second Adam and that when we accept him, we are engrafted into his family so that now I know I have an eternal relationship with him. He is my ancestor who I can worship because he died for me and he was perfect. And I have this connection with my identity. And lastly, in our search for significance, what is my purpose? Our lives have meaning and significance because God is just and calls us to do justice. And so we should continue to fight against oppression. 
He gives us a sense of significance. He says, this is what I'm about. I have a plan, and my plan is to present and proclaim my peace on earth as it is in heaven. That's what I want to do. And I am looking for foot soldiers. I'm looking for people who can go beyond their sense of ethnocentrism, beyond their sense of what they want me to be like, and actually serve the one true and living God and proclaim my message of peace throughout the world. Will you be enlisted in my army? Because we're looking for a few good women and a few good men. In Colossians 1.20, it says that, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether in earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And this is the amazing picture that Jesus is so big, and his, his power is so big that not only does he reconcile us to God, which in and of itself is an incredible feat that only he was capable of, that he, the matter, and this is what I had to look through in my journey. See, because all of that, when all that was said and done, it was like, yeah, okay, all this cultural stuff. But the reality was I realized I was a sinner. I did stuff and I hurt people. And I was wrong for doing it. And see, and it was like I couldn't blame the white man for that. Because nobody made me lie to that girl and tell her what she wanted to hear so I could get what I wanted. Nobody made me do that. I did that. And God was looking at me to give an account for that. And ultimately, he, he's the one that says, you know what, Father? I, look, treat me like you would treat him. But not only that, the amazing thing is if you look at the genealogy of Jesus, it wasn't just that he had African in his bloodstream. He had Canaanite in his bloodstream. He had prostitutes in his lineage. He had people who failed and faltered in life in their lineage, people who had been raped in their lineage, people who had done all sorts of wrong things. And he, he came through all of those people to identify as their descendant, the one who could actually save them. And that gives me hope because the son of God was also the son of man who represents all of us and who, through whom we can all be reconciled at the foot of the cross. Making peace by the blood of his cross. He reconciles all things, whether on earth or in heaven. All of that comes under him. This is how my friend Ephraim Smith puts it. Jesus both transcends and dismantles race. The fact that he was multi-ethnic as a human being is significant because it gives us a picture of the fact that God ain't playing favorites. He is appointed one way, and that way is Jesus, and that way represents, we can all look at him. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. It took the perfect son of God to reconcile us to God and the multi-ethnic son of man to reconcile us to each other. This is our hope. Not a petty perspective that just wants to make my own way and my own heritage the center of the universe. Not something that just looks at the pains of the past and blames a whole group of people for being innately evil and me being innately good. One that says, you know what? We all have fallen and we all have fallen short of the glory of God. But he says, come, and I can restore you, and I can give you purpose and significance. I care about the issues going on. I care about police brutality. I care about rape. I care about racism. I care about gun violence because all of you are made in my image, and I want to do something about it. But that can only happen when you change somebody's heart, not just when you change a policy. (laughs) 
I'm going to just pray right now, and I don't know where you are. I don't know if for this message, maybe you needed to hear this because you're still wrestling through, and I wish we had more time to get through more. Or if this message was for you because you know there's somebody that had a lot of these issues, and this, doesn't, this wasn't intended to answer every question or resolve everything. But there is a challenge here, and I do believe God is speaking to your heart and going, you know, maybe I had this thing all wrong. And this is the last thing I'll say, but the, the tragedy with this thing is, and I'll just be very blunt, is oftentimes as people who have experienced oppression, we give white people too much credit. How are you going to give them credit for making a whole faith that wasn't, they weren't even around to live out and, and live? I mean, that's Jesus, not a, a group of people. And I'm not saying that to throw shade on anybody because, like I said, we all have to come the same way. But what I'm saying is we have to redefine the way we think about these things. Because there's a difference between what the Bible teaches and says and what we've seen lived out around us and what other people are saying. It doesn't matter how loud they get on the megaphone, on the block, and shout it out. It still don't make it true. True. So I'm just going to pray and, uh, yeah, just ask God that he would... Speak to your hearts. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you that you make it abundantly clear that you made us in your image, male and female, you made them, and that we all have to come the same way. Whether we are of means or whether we're not, whether our sin has been public or whether it's private and nobody knows, you know. And Lord, um, we pray, God, because there's so much deception and Satan has blinded the eyes and minds of people to accept lies about who you are that are just not true. But like you told us in your word, you rose again. And because that happened, that's all that matters. The historic failings of men don't matter. What only matters is what you've done. And you've given us a decision. You've given us a choice to believe your true story and to walk in it. Pray that you would help us to take that first step. In Christ's name. We hope you've been encouraged by this message. We'd love to hear how God used this sermon to speak to you. Please take a minute to email us your story. Our email address is info at bridgechurchnyc.com. And you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by using at bridgechurchnyc or visit our website, bridgechurchnyc.com. Thanks again for listening to this week's message.